The reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Nick. Good morning, Redemption. I am so excited this morning because I want to show you that I have a jar of dirt. Isn't that awesome? I can get you to clap at anything, can I? Yeah, it's all right. Actually, this jar of dirt is pretty significant. I wanted to share it with you. Uh, every month, uh, all the uh, pastors at Redemption Church, all 10 congregations, you heard Tyler mention we're, we're one church with 10 congregations. We get together and we, we meet together, we share God's stories, and we pray together. And uh, we're very excited about our Gateway Congregation, which is our second largest congregation led by Luke Simmons. Some of you know Luke. Um, he's uh, in charge of our preaching collective. He's the one that, uh, with input from us, puts together the preaching calendar every year, works very hard on that. Uh, Gateway has been uh, leasing their space uh, since they started over 10 years ago. They were, they were not originally a Redemption Church. They joined Redemption seven years ago. Um, and, and they've been leasing, and they just uh, purchased 10 acres right next to where they're leasing out in Queen Creek, uh, the lot next to them. They purchased it, and they have uh, started their construction. And so uh, Luke went out there and, and put together uh, 10 jars of dirt for each of the lead pastors so that we could keep it in our office and pray for Gateway as they go through their project. Remember, we went through a project too. Remember that? And it was hard, and it was challenging, and, so, and we needed prayer. And so I want to invite you to join me in praying for uh, Gateway and for uh, Luke and the staff out there doing a great work out there. So let me pray, and then we'll get started with the uh, sermon. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for Redemption Church and what you're doing in, in the midst of this, of this community, uh, the amazing leadership that we've been afforded through our founding pastors, Tom Schrader and Justin Anderson, uh, through the leadership that we have now through Tyler and, and, and um, uh, his mentoring over all of us and, and uh, our executive pastor, Neil, who um, keeps us in good financial graces as well. We're so thankful. And God, we lift up to you right now um, our brothers and sisters in our congregation at, at Gateway. We pray for them. We pray for their ongoing capital campaign, uh, the construction that's going on on their new home uh, we know how exciting that is, and we just ask that you would bless them and empower them in the midst of that, that you would be glorified. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, somebody pointed out, we're going to look at Ephesians 3, 1 through 6 today, so you can turn there. Uh, somebody, I, I don't even remember who, I thought I knew who it was, and I asked them last Sunday, and they said, no, it wasn't us, although they know the woman that I'm going to talk about. Uh, somebody pointed out this story and, I, and, and wanted to share it with me, and, and uh, I read it, and, and there's a section in here that is both encouraging and disruptive enough that I thought it could help us with today's passage. It's from a woman named uh, Lina Heitzig. Uh, she is a, an award-winning author and international speaker, and her husband and her 
uh, Skip uh, actually planted, and uh, they're the founders of uh, Calvary Church of Albuquerque, a, a, a really wonderful uh, church there. So she writes this, and just listen to her story. My atheist father raised me on fanciful parables where the moral of the story concluded that God could not exist. His strong belief in human ability and the power of positive thinking laced my childhood with quips like, what one conceives and then believes can be achieved. No pie in the sky and the sweet by and by awaited us. Instead, if I wanted help, I needed to look no further than the end of my own arm. By my college days, my arms were weighed down by the baggage of my parents' divorce, an absentee father, and a stoically distant stepfather. Like many college co-eds, I try to cope with one-night stand, uh, one stands, binge drinking, and recreational drugs. But at night, when the lights were out, I was left wondering, is there something more to life? Unlike Wonder Woman, I possess no ability to rescue others, least of all myself, from these destructive behaviors. During my sophomore year, my dad, now a doctor, a law student, and an author, had a born-again experience after reading a red-letter edition of the Bible to determine whether Jesus professed positive things. His newfound faith threatened me. Outwardly, I wildly mocked him. Inwardly, his reversal of worldviews launched me on a quest to discover the meaning of life. That's something. Uh, that would be today's big idea in this passage, is the reversal of worldviews. In Rosaria's, uh, Rosaria, <laughs> I have some sort of a weird parasocial relationship now with Rosaria Butterfield. I call her by her first name. She has no idea who I am. <laughs> Rosaria Butterfield's most recent book, uh, she writes this. The internal mission of the Bible is to transform the nature of humanity. That is why unbelievers know it is a dangerous text. I would add that believers also know that this is a dangerous text. Do you feel that the Bible is a dangerous text? Because it is. And you should. It's a dangerous text. And the reason it's dangerous is because the Bible challenges everything that you and I hold dear. It challenges our sin our identities, our preferences, and our views on justice. And guess what? The Jews also found in Paul's time that the Bible was a, a dangerous text, that the gospel was a dangerous experience for people to go through. The gospel is dangerous because of what it meant to the Jews' identity and their position as the supposed people of God. What Paul is writing about here is a reversal of worldviews for many. And so that's why Paul continues what he started in chapter 2, verse 11, really chapter 2, verse 10. He's continuing that whole thing. He continues to uh, put it in 21st century vernacular. He is pounding away on this issue. And he's not being mean and he's not being divisive. He just knows his audience because he was once a Jew who was dismissive of Gentiles and had a very odd understanding of identity and justice and preference. So let me reread what Nick read for us, and then we'll go back and go, just go verse by verse and unpack it. For this reason, now Paul writes for this reason, so he's 
He's saying, I'm, I'm still connected to the text that came before this. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's interesting. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I'm assuming you've heard my story. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it, his, at, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. For this reason, we're not done yet. He looks back to what he started in, in verse 11 of chapter 2. And again, I would say, really, he started it in verse 10. This is about the struggle that we all have with racial and ethnic and cultural divides. And how the gospel, in the gospel, we're reconciled and unified. And, and jump, jump down to verse 6. He says, this mystery that I'm talking about, once again is that Gentiles are now fellow heirs. They are members of the same body, partakers. It's an interesting word. Partakers in the promise of Christ Jesus in the gospel. The word partakers is a, is a compound Greek word that literally means sewn together by joints. Sewn together by joints. In other words, we are one. Now, the last thing... I want is for all of you to feel like I've been watching liberal TV and reading Salon.com and, and reading the Huffington Post and somehow that's motivating me. Nervous laughter there, that's funny to me. And no, I haven't been watching Fox either or listening to Rush Limbaugh. I, I know this may shock some, this may absolutely shock some of you, and I know it will because of some of the conversations I've had in the last several months. But I read and study the Bible. I do not get my theology from Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity. And that should gladden your hearts, by the way. In fact, based on what Paul writes in these six verses, here's what I propose. I don't even want to use the term racial reconciliation anymore because racial reconciliation really doesn't seem to mean anything anymore because it's primarily a worldly term that was made in the flesh, as Paul says. Instead, let's talk biblically about how we are new creations. The beauty of us being new creations by the power of the gospel who now see each other through the lens of Jesus with the mind of Christ. That's a much more beautiful vision than any human being can come up with made with hands of flesh. Let's talk about how People who were once enemies now live as friends and co-workers and fellow missionaries together with an understanding of grace, trust, and forgiveness. See, here's the challenge with racial reconciliation. Many who use this term have an ideology, but frankly, they don't have a methodology and they don't have an ethos of personal sacrifice. It's something that needs to happen, and that would be really good, but really, we just need to get everybody else in line. But racial, ethnic, and cultural unity and restoration in the gospel is centered in the person and sacrifice of Jesus, crucified and resurrected, with that love and humility then imputed to us, making all things new. That's the gospel. And it is beautiful. We need to understand that Paul doesn't necessarily think of, of, 
of everything in terms of doctrine and praxis, but in terms of how the gospel makes all things new. Now, that's hard for us because we get a lot of our doctrine and praxis from Paul, don't we? A ton of it. And, and it's not that doctrine and praxis are bad, but, and certainly we should study it and we should be shaped by it, but ultimately the, uh, the gospel is the story of how God makes all things new. And, and that means transformation and it means sacrifice. Here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. We are to live as sacrifices poured out. And he says, do not be conformed to this world. If your daily routines are informed by nothing but this world, you will be conformed to this world and not to the gospel. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing the gospel here, you may discern what is the will of God, what is, the good and accept what is good and acceptable in purpose. Perfect. Uh, that word transformed is the Greek word metamorpheo. You want to take one guess at what English word we get from metamorpheo? Metamorphosis. When, when we come to Christ and we are in the gospel, there should be a metamorphosis, a transformation that begins to happen. The mind of Christ, the renewing of Christ, he's making all things new. And so when cultures bump up against each other in the body of Christ, everybody's going to have to give up something. That's the loving and serving way. So let's take a little closer look at the details of this paragraph, and, th and then we'll make some final application. Uh, but first, I want to make sure we understand uh, the first almost half of this book, from chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, 6. This is what Paul's been saying. He says, here's who Jesus is. Here's how Jesus has blessed us. This is how Jesus has saved us and redeemed us. And this is what Jesus and his gospel have done, reconciled us and, and, and unified all things. This is about what, what God has done and who God is. This is a theocentric story and not an anthropocentric story. We are not the main characters. I know that disappoints us. But we are along for the ride, surfing the glorious tide and living in redemption. So look again. At verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He was literally a prisoner in the Roman prison because of his call to the Gentile ministry. Paul, a Jew who's been converted to Christ, is in jail because he wants to go and, and be a friend to Gentiles, his enemy, his mortal ethnic enemy. It was his mission and his call to his enemy, that landed him in prison in the first place? This is, a, this is a very uncomfortable question, I know. But what are you and I willing to sacrifice in the commission of our call for the kingdom of God and for the sake of our enemies? I, I have trouble helping married people see how they might love and serve their spouse better. We don't even get to talk about our enemies ever. 
Isn't that an amazing thing? It's amazing. Do we ever really suffer for the cause of Christ? I mean, we hate that question, don't we? I can tell by the looks on your faces. You hate that question. The problem is it's a real issue, and, and that's why we don't like the question, because we know it could happen, and we know it has happened, and because we know it's happening elsewhere in this world right now. We've seen the videos. So Paul, verse 1 continues Paul's thought about all of this. But, when Paul, but then Paul goes into a bit of a digression. He does. He stops and he goes into a bit of a digression to help remind everyone that he's writing to that his call was, was into this Gentile ministry in the first place. Verses 2 and 3. Assuming that you have heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So the revelation and the call he's talking about was 26 years earlier, and you can find it in the book of Acts chapter 9. And he says, certainly you've heard about this. If not, ask someone. I planted the church in Ephesus. They're going to know this story because I've told it several times to people who were there. So if you don't know the story, here's the story. Paul, as a good religious Jewish person who believed that Jesus was not the Messiah and believed that anybody who was following Jesus as the Messiah was breaking the law and needed to be put into prison or executed, which Paul was responsible for many of those, he decided to get the official letters from um, the chief priests and the, and, and, and the Sanhedrin, the, the chief religious council in Jerusalem, and he was so determined to, uh, to execute his mission for God, he believed that he was God's man, that he was going to travel all the way to Damascus, more than 100 miles away, and he was going to find Christians there, and he was going to arrest them, and he was going to haul them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial and maybe execute some of them. And on his way there, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and knocked him off of his ride and blinded him. And Paul's first response to all of this was, Who are you, Lord? He knew that he had finally met somebody that was greater than him, greater than the Sanhedrin, and greater than his understanding of theology. His worldview was about to get reversed. And Jesus called him into ministry. And you've, if you've been around for any length of time, you, you've heard this from me before. It is a fascinating call into ministry. It was, it was a job description that had two bullet points. That's it. You are going to go to your lifelong, hated, second-class, barely human enemy, the Gentiles, and you're going to tell them the good news about Jesus. You're going to love on them, and you're going to serve them. That was bullet point number one. What was bullet point number two? You're going to suffer. <laughs> you're going to suffer for it. Okay? How many of you right now are going, I can't wait to get called into vocational ministry? <laughs> that sounds really good. So Paul is reminding them of this and, and, and that the gospel story of including the Gentiles was not made by hands in the flesh. He couldn't have made this up. He was incapable of making this up. It had to be from God. It was something that God did. And listen to Paul's language in this passage. He says, this is a blessing. He says, God blessed me by doing this. This is not a burden. It sounds, bur it sounds like more than a burden to me. He says, not burden. This is a blessing. This is God's grace in my life. We struggle with this. Uh, the, 
and, and I think the reason is because, and I live this way too. I just tell you, my wife and I live this way too. My wife and I have the tendency to contract out all the stuff that we don't want to do in our lives. Don't you? Can't we find somebody else to do the stuff that we don't like to do? Right? This is our, our culture, our marketplace is turning into a marketplace of subcontractors. I hope you understand that. People are turning their cars into taxis. And it's happening in every aspect of our market, subcontractors. Because we don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable or inconvenienced. That's the, that's the culture that we live in. And i got to tell you something. It's grand. I love it. It is. It's great. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But it changes our perspective. And all it does is it reinforces our worldview that our preferences take uh, take uh, priority over what God tells us in his word. And that can be dangerous. That's a challenge for us. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, says this. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial that you will endure because you are a follower of Christ. And yet, what's the first thing that happens when you and I endure a fiery trial because we're a follower of Christ? What's going on? We're shocked. We're shocked by this. And then look at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Uh, he says, based on my call, and uh, by and in Christ, I can now see the mystery of the gospel. The supposedly, and here it is, here's the mystery. The supposedly second-class Gentiles are joining all people of God fully in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. What does the word mystery mean? Mystery in, in the Greek, it means that which was previously unknown and that which only God can reveal. We can't reveal it. We can't figure it out. See, our sense of mystery today, when we hear that word, um, our sense is that it's a genre of a novel or a movie, and we get to kind of figure it out as we go. Uh, I will tell you that one of the, I, I love going to movies with Jackie. It's one of the, my favorite things. But one of the most annoying things about Jackie is that she's got the plot figured out, I think, before the screenwriters had the plot figured out. And I've taught her not to tell me before the end because I, I, I struggle with that. The, the mystery that we're looking at here is not escape room or a brain twister or a crossword puzzle or Sherlock or Longmire or Silence of the Lambs. This is something that God reveals in Jesus by his spirit. And for the Jews, it was the answer to the question that they could never answer. When is the day of the Lord coming? Because we want to see all those non-people of God smoked. When is the Messiah coming? And who is the Messiah? And when will he defeat our worldly enemies? Believe it or not, our worldly enemies are not the most important enemies. Satan is our most important enemy. The realm of darkness is our most important enemy. And that's who Jesus came to defeat. And that really frustrated the Jews. They were just mad at the Romans. But, but the true mystery of the gospel is now revealed. And you had, if you have a... If you have a Jewish worldview at that time, literally their response is something like, what? The Gentiles are part of us now? Unity and reconciliation? Yikes. It's a reversal of their worldview. But think of Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. When the angel of the Lord reveals to John what the new Jerusalem looks like, 
and he talks about the river of life, the water of life running through the center of the city. And on either side of the city is the tree of life. That's interesting. I'm sorry, on either side of the river is the tree of life. Isn't that interesting that the tree of life is going to be on either side of the river, and it's going to have its 12 seasons of fruit for us? Can't wait to eat that heavenly fruit. It's going to be good. And then what what does the angel say about the leaves of the tree? They are for the healing of the nations. Do you know what that Greek word nations, translated nations, is? It's ethnon. We get that word ethnic from it. It's for the healing of all of these differences that you and I have had with so many people just because we're different. We have differences because we're different. And we think we're better, and they think they're better, and all of those differences are going to be healed by the leaves of this tree. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing? I got one amen for that. That's a little underwhelming for how beautiful this is. I will tell you. Thank you. I got one more. Thanks. Appreciate it. Look at verse 5. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It it was made known, but not quite in this way before. Uh, Many of the Jews believe that The days of the prophets were over, and they are now surprised to hear that God still reveals himself, only he's revealing himself through the apostles of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit writing through them. And then look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's interesting. There were sections of the Old Testament that certainly did, in fact, point to how the Gentiles may eventually join Uh, the Jews, in their inheritance of the kingdom of God. But again, the way the Jews saw it is that the Gentiles were going to come as latecomers and not necessarily deserving of full membership. And then most Old Testament scholars and, and interpreters of the time would twist even those passages into something else completely. There was simply resistance to Gentiles being partakers. And Paul is hitting fact hard the fact that The Gentiles are partakers. By the way, let me say, some scholars, some Greek scholars, believe that Paul invented this word partakers. He took two other Greek words and jammed them together in order to help us with the intensity of what he means by this. As far as they've been able to see, this word was not used in any ancient Greek writing prior to Paul using it. Paul used to do that in order to, to form a new word to really try to get across what he was talking about. And he did it in order to emphasize the gravity of the Gentiles' same inheritance in the kingdom of God, of which Jesus is the king. And the weight of what Paul is saying is this. The Jews believed that if the Gentiles did join them, they first had to become Jewish, and Paul said no. Paul says that the Gentiles retain their ethnic identity while still becoming full members, partakers in the inheritance of God through the gospel. And and here's what one scholar wrote. Um, He said, it's as though, Paul is saying, it's as though the Gentiles entered the promised land uh, more than a thousand years earlier with the Jews. That they entered the promised land with the Jews as full, equal covenant members. And that the Gentiles actually had a hand in creating some of the culture and tradition in that. So Paul keeps on this because we as humans... Looking for comfort and familiarity, we struggle with this. We do. Uh, In 2010 or 2011, Bonnie Albo wrote a really helpful 
kind of short essay titled, Homogenized and Pasteurized Church Fits the American Dream. See, we, want, we just want everybody to look like us, act like us, behave like us, prefer the same things as us. Uh, in research, this is called the false consensus effect. We just want everybody to be like us, and that makes us most comfortable. Um, the greatest false god in American culture today, the greatest false god in American culture today, and I couldn't limit myself to one because there's actually two, politics and sexual and gender identity. Those are the two greatest false gods in our, in our culture today. People really believe that somehow um, Donald Trump or, or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or whoever is going to somehow save them. And it's been interesting just in the last 15 years to hear how often people have actually used the word savior to describe Barack Obama or Donald Trump. It's fascinating to me. Um, and then this gender and sexual identity, you know how that's been going. You know, everybody has to bow down and worship at this altar. Um, those maybe aren't the greatest false god in the American church, though. You know what the greatest false god in the American church is? It's comfort. It's comfort. Uh, that's the, that's the that, though, I would say we have more conversations about that in church leadership than anything else. Isn't that interesting? Some of you are like, well, I guess I'm not going to write that email next week about how cold it was in the sanctuary. <laughs> uh, Brett McCracken recently wrote a book called Uncomfortable, the Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. See, people are beginning to understand this and recognize it. it, it it's a reversal of worldviews. Um, I'm reading, I'm just finishing up a, just a fantastic book, I think. You may not like it. I really liked it. Just opened my eyes. There's a guy named Josh Butler wrote it. It's called Skeletons in God's Closet. It's really fantastic. Has anybody read that book, by the way? Thank you. And is, by the way, Josh is now going to become uh, the executive pastor at Redemption Tempe. I don't know if you saw that blog. Isn't that awesome? Okay, you don't care. Let me tell you what he wrote about, though. He said, in our culture today, we are concerned with freedom. This is just one of the points he makes. The problem, though, is that our idea of freedom is freedom from God, freedom from others, and freedom from ourselves. We don't like ourselves very much. And he actually goes into, and he's a young guy. He's a young guy. He's not an old guy like me <laughs> who's whining about social media. He, he, he says, this is what social media is all about, is how we want freedom from ourselves because we can be whoever we want online. We want freedom from, from God, from others, and from ourselves. He says the gospel gives us freedom for, for God, for others, for ourselves who God is calling us to be and filling us by his Holy Spirit to be. That's our freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, I never really understood that. That verse, it sounds kind of circular. It almost sounds like Dr. Seuss wrote it, you know? And now I understand it. It's, it's for something. We are free for something. All of this reminds me of a couple of passages. No, I'm not done yet. I know some of you are like, you know, Safeway's getting busy. I get that, okay? 
A couple of passages, again, that make us uncomfortable. And and I want to read one to you and, and then just mention the other one. The first one is in Luke. Luke, by the way, has been called the gospel of reversals. Isn't that interesting? Everything gets reversed in the gospel of Luke. And, and uh, Jesus tells this parable. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he's right. He's quoting Leviticus there. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Go and do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer desiring to justify himself. That is the problem inherent with every single one of us in this room, including me. All I want to do is justify myself. That's it. All I want to do is justify what I've done, who I am, what I've said, and what I think. That's my primary goal in life. And apart from the gospel, uh, that's the only thing that will save me from that, that prison. Okay, But desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied, a man, a Jewish man, because he's from Jerusalem, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, a professional religious person for Jews, was going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed him on the other side of the road. So likewise, a Levite, yet another priest, When he came to the place and saw the man, he passed him on the other side. But a Samaritan, what's a Samaritan in relationship to the Jews? Second rate, hardly even a human being, awful, enemy, dirty, lousy, lower than us person, okay? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring out on oil and wine, And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, you go and do likewise. Um, I I, I think that we've uh, sort of kiddied that parable up too much, you know, sort of, yeah, that's, uh, we like that in, in children's ministry, such a good story about being a friend. <laughs> what was the sacrifice there for both of those people? We know that the Samaritan made an incredible sacrifice. What was the sacrifice for the Jew that was hurt? He had to be helped by the person he would least expect to ever help him, his enemy. Do you understand what Jesus is trying to get at? This is so important. It is so critical that we understand this. Who are we? Certainly, there's a place for us to be the self-righteous, the religious ones, in the crossing over on the other side. There's a place for that. But many of us are the ones that are in the ditch, asking for help, and then realizing that help is going to come from the most unlikely place that you and I have ever come up with, our enemy. Our enemy who understands who God is, that we're all created in God's image, 
and that we were made to love each other and to serve each other. His enemy came and saved him. And it's a picture of the gospel, too. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, God saved us. Jesus, his son, died for us. It is a complete reversal of worldviews. Total. It's not a little bit. We don't just add Jesus to our life and say, okay, we're good to go. He's the band-aid in the places that I don't have covered. He changes everything. That, that second place that I wanted to mention is, is Malachi 1. This is the last book in the Old Testament, so it's about 400 years before the birth of Jesus when the Old Testament goes silent. And it's really interesting to me because in Malachi, God really comes after his people, the Jews, because they still don't get it. <laughs> this isn't the beginning of their relationship where he's trying to say, you don't get it, and I understand that. This is a thousand years later, and he's going, you guys still don't get it. He says, I love you, and, and, and the people literally say, how have you loved us, God? How have you loved us? We don't feel loved from, from you. And God says, well, here's how I've loved you. And, and, then, and then God says, your sacrifices are lacking. And they're saying, what? Our sacrifices? How have our sacrifices lacking? And God says, here's how your sacrifices are lacking. Here's why. You have 20 sheep, and you're supposed to bring one for a sacrifice, and I've asked you to bring the best one, but, but which one do you bring? You bring the one that's 136 years old, emaciated, uh, doesn't have any fat or meat on him, is blind, and the only time he can stand up is if he leans against a fence post. That's it. That's the one you bring for sacrifice. Okay? God's getting on his people. But he's, it, and, I, and here you go, I know, it feels really naggy, doesn't it? It feels naggy. But God is being patient. Have you waited a thousand years for anybody to figure something out? Have you ever waited a thousand years? for that. He's waited a thousand years for them to figure this out. He's brought them through the exodus. He brought them through the exile. And, and, and this is after the restoration and the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. But God keeps patiently, lovingly plugging away. But it doesn't mean he's going to go away. Listen, this gospel proclamation, it means something. It means something. And God, because of his great love for us, is going to just keep after us. He is. You're in this deal now. If you're a follower of Christ, he's not going anywhere. You might try to run, but he's not going anywhere. He's going to keep coming after you. And that's good news. And the truth is, is that the vertical that we've been blessed by has to be turned outward and lived horizontally. That's what God is saying. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this word and its truth, and we just pray that we would be your people, that, that, that we would be people that you would look at and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But we can't do it without you. We need your filling, we need your wisdom, and we need your love. And so we just ask you for that now. We ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have a time.